I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. Charles Rapley. Charles Rapley is the author of Sons of Providence, The Brown Brothers, The Slave Trade, and The American Revolution, winner of the George Washington Book Prize as the best book on the founding era of 2006. Prior to his work on the revolution, Rapley was an investigative journalist and editor at the LA Weekly, the nation's largest alternative newsweekly. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Mr. Charles Rapley. Thank you, Thank you. The title of this lecture is Public Debt, How Much is Too Much? And I should, in fairness, uh, let you know right at the outset, I don't know the answer. Um, and I've, I have arraigned with Dulce, if you feel you were brought here under false pretenses, they've agreed to refund the ticket price at the door if you, if you want to walk out now. Uh, what I can tell you about is that uh, the questions of debt and finance uh, have been central to the American project since the very beginning. And questions of debt and finance were asked and vis vigorously debated and uh, resolved in some fashion in the writing of the U.S. Constitution. This early debate and its resolution is probably best illustrated in the life and the story of Robert Morris, the financier of the revolution and the subject of my new book. Uh, Robert Morris was a merchant capitalist at the time of the revolution. He was born in Liverpool, came over at the age of 13, apprenticed in a counting house. His father died when he was 16. He was an orphan in the new world uh, 20 years before the revolution. Come the revolution, uh, he was very successful in, in international trade, a global capitalist at the very dawn of global capitalism, shipping flour and grain to uh, the capitals of Europe and all around the Caribbean, operating through uh, agents and factors in foreign capitals who would assemble cargoes and send them back, all on his personal integrity and credit. Uh, Morris didn't like the idea of the American Revolution. He was doing very well at the time that it arrived. Uh, he had a, a house in town, a grand estate in the countryside, a young family, a budding career. He is a principal in the most successful merchant firm in Philadelphia, which was the largest uh, port in North America. He didn't want to, he was doing just fine under the British rules of trade and uh, didn't feel like relinquishing his, his, uh, his uh, home, the country of his birth and, and uh, his allegiance to his king. Uh, however, the revolution came and uh, he had to decide between the country of his birth and the country of his uh, residency and he, adopt and he went with his adoptive country. Uh, enlisted in the revolution, uh, plying his usual, uh, his, his usual trade or, uh, uh, as, a, as a trader and, and in this case uh, importing uh, uh, first as the largest contractor to the government and then, to, and then as a member of the Continental Congress as the chairman of the committee that was in charge of secret uh, importations of gunpowder to arm the American army. So, you know, it's, uh, I think it's worth keeping in mind that this, the, the degree to which this guy was stepping out of his role as a member of the establishment and in fact running the secret arms trade that was arming the rebel army. Uh, 
Uh, Morris was very good at this. Um, he came to the attention of, of the members of the Continental Congress. They made him chairman of the secret committee that was operating the secret trade and was so successful in bringing in gunpowder that from a, a position of utter scarcity at the beginning of the war, uh, by after the first two years of the war, it was no longer a factor. Um, uh, Morris was very good at this. It was a very taxing occupation. Uh, his, he, he was first a contractor and then, as I said, uh, appointed to the Continental Congress and became chairman of the secret committee. Uh, again, very taxing and he wanted out. He wanted out of the government and to return to his private business, which was suffering uh, as a consequence of his engagement. Uh, he did leave the government in 1779. Uh, he returned to his private affairs and prospered mightily at the time, um, which was not the case with the American Revolution. Uh, the affairs of the, uh, the military affairs of the, of the war, if you know the story of the revolution, went from basically bad to worse, a series of reversals, uh, either, uh, either defeats in the field or just utter retreat uh, racing across the countryside ahead of the British. The affairs of the government were in similar shape. Uh, for the first five years of the, of the revolution, uh, the war was financed on uh, faith and credit. Uh, basically, that was all they had. They printed money, they passed it out, the continental dollar. Uh, it, 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 it worked for a while. People accepted that currency and, and, and in their enthusiasm for the war, adopted the, uh, the currency being promulgated by the Continental Congress. Uh, but as the war started grinding on and, uh, and going badly, um, and as, as, as privation started to set in, uh, people stopped accepting the money, uh, they, started, they, they lost some of their enthusiasm, the money start, started to slip, and then it went into a real death spiral, and by 1780, it was all but worthless. Uh, the American economy had uh, all but shut down, it was reduced to barter, um, and uh, the only way the government was operating was on loans from France, uh, loans that France was hoping would be repaid sometime fairly soon even, or at least the interest on it, none of which was happening because the American government couldn't raise taxes. Uh, this was a war that was being fought in defiance of taxes, and uh, the, 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 this, the people at large were not interested in paying taxes to some new government. Um, in fact, they codified it that way in the Articles of Confederation, which was the first document uh, organizing the American states as, as a single entity. Sort of, uh, uh, sort of uh, designated the Congress as something of a debating society. They were given the power to spend money, to commit funds uh, and, and to spend money, but not the power to raise it. Uh, they were given no powers to tax, that was reserved to the states, and what they were empowered to do was to request that the states would forward them money when necessary, and this, they, they proceeded to do that, uh, request funds from the states, and the states basically said, uh, we, we just don't have any, and so uh, the affairs of the government were grinding to a halt. Uh, the members of Congress, uh, patriots all, uh, started looking around and trying to figure out what to do about this. Um, there were a number of problems in the government, uh, one of which was they had decided early on that they didn't trust authority, that authority, centralized authority was one of the problems that they were fighting against, the monarchies of Europe and so on. And uh, 
so what they, what they decided was everything would be decided by committee. Well, if you've dealt with a lot of committees, you know that that's not always the best way to do things, and, and in Congress they found that out as well. But this was an ideological position that they were holding to very strongly, uh, and that was another of the complications that they were facing. All of these came to a head at the end of 1780. It was clear that they couldn't keep going the way they were going, and they cast about high and low looking for a solution. Uh, they found one. Uh, it was not a popular one, but it was an inescapable one, and it lay in the, uh, in the person of Robert Morris. They decided that this was the guy the, with the capacity, the, the energy, uh, the decision, uh, the sagacity to extricate them from all their problems. Uh, uh, Morris uh, uh, looked at the situation and uh, regretfully came to the same conclusion. Uh, and when they drafted Robert Morris, uh, he said, well, okay, but only on one condition will I step in as your chief executive. Uh, the, the position they were recruiting him for was uh, uh, superintendent of finance, a title never seen before or since in the American <laughs> halls of governance, uh, but a critical one at the time when finance was the problem that they were up against, they set up two other executive departments, one for war and one for foreign affairs, but the, the war was being uh, carried out under the command of George Washington and that really wasn't gonna change. Foreign affairs was a matter of writing letters and actually uh, uh, dealing with this, the, the foreign ambassadorships, which were John Jay and uh, Ben Franklin and later uh, John Adams, really a small core, not a big job whereas Secretary of uh, uh, Superintendent of Finance was a, a huge undertaking. And uh, Morris realized that, that this would be very difficult and he needed everything, uh, he, needed, he needed powers to pull this off. And he came back to the Congress and he said, well, okay, I, I, I will take this position on one condition, that you invest in me the power to hire and fire anybody in the employ of any agency of the government, without recourse, without appeal, it's up to me. And they said, well, uh, they, this went against everything that they believed in, which was to democratize and to, and to share, the, share the power, uh, not let it concentrate in the hands of one person. And they debated this proposition for several weeks and finally, uh, finally capitulated. Um, they didn't know where else to turn. And so they brought in Robert Morris, a superintendent of finance, with powers that, if you stop to think about it, exceed any powers granted to any civilian in uh, American history from then until now. Uh, more than the chief executive, uh, more, than, uh, more than anybody else, Robert Morris. And so he steps into this job and he has many things he needs to do. Uh, slash spending in the bureaucracy, uh, get, uh, clothing and, and weapons to the army out in the field. Uh, get the civil government operating, you know, reform the operations of the civil government, get the Navy out to sea. Uh, but the primary, uh, his primary object, the thing that he set out to do and made quite explicit, was to restore to the American government, if it ever had it, uh, something he called public credit. And uh, this, was, this was actually 
a fairly new thing, like global capitalism. Public credit was a fairly new thing under the sun. Public debt was not. Uh, we all know about the debts of Spain and how the galleons had to, the galleys had to come back from from uh, from the Americas with all the gold to keep paying off the debts of Spain. Uh, and they, they, as long as the gold was coming in, they kept themselves afloat. And then when it was gone, so were they. Um, at least as far as their empire goes, France was in very much the same position. But England was doing something a little bit different. Um, and partly by default, uh, which might be the wrong word to use there, but partly uh, it, it just evolved that way, that uh, they got into wars, and then to raise the money, they did this innovative thing, which was to set up funds that, uh, with a promise to pay through the Bank of England uh, on, a, on a certain percentage basis, on a regular basis, and so get private people to invest their money in these funds. And that evolved into the public debt. Uh, public debt in England uh, was uh, something remarkable for the time. Uh, in 1763, after the first war with France, their first big uh, the, uh, international war with France, which in America is known as the French and Indian War, but of course took place on several different continents, uh, debt in Britain was, the British national debt was 115 million pounds. Uh, which in those days was just an astronomical figure. Nobody could get their mind around it. It's sort of like talking about trillions of dollars in debt today. That was in 1763. By 1784, after, after staging the American Revolution, British debt was at 245 million pounds, um, rapidly escalating. Uh, enough that people were talking about, we're going to go bankrupt, we can't do this. But what they, could, what they had done and what they did do with it was assembled the greatest military force the world had ever seen. Project, uh, project their power across the seas, build more ships anytime they need them, raise more armies anytime they need them, and when they ran out of soldiers, go hire them from other countries. You know, they sent the Hessians over here, uh, tens of thousands of mercenaries, and, and paid for them out of their public debt. Uh, this, this phenomenon uh, occurred to a number of people in the revolution. Uh, George Washington wrote about it, Alexander Hamilton wrote about it, and Robert Morris wrote about it uh, in communicating to the governors uh, soon after his appointment what it was he was trying to do. Uh, and he wrote to them as follows, uh, the credit of Great Britain is not only her chief, but almost her only support, inferior in everything else to the nations combined against her, she still makes head everywhere and balances opposition through the four corners of the globe. While we feel the force of these last strugglings of her ambition, we must admire the source from whence they flow. Admiring, we should endeavor to imitate public credit. Uh, in, in, Morris saw this, saw how it worked. He was really impressed. He ascribed to it almost mystical qualities. He called it a precious jewel. In another letter, he referred to it as the inestimable jewel of public credit. And uh, in everything that he was doing, he was trying to establish this for the government. Now, this was a government that had virtually gone bankrupt, that nobody had any confidence in any longer. Uh, for the first contracts that Mar Morris put out as a superintendent of finance, these were contracts to uh, supply the army with flour. Um, the contractors wouldn't take the say-so of a government official that they would get paid, and he didn't have the money to pay them right away. So he bought it on time. 
And he signed it, uh, Robert Moore, Superintendent of Finance, uh, Continental Congress. And then underneath that, he said, but if you're not going to accept that from the government, take it from me. On my personal credit, I will make sure that you get paid. And those contracts went through. Uh, this happened on several occasions, and uh, Morris explained what he was doing in a letter to a friend. He said, uh, my personal credit has been substituted for that which the country has lost. I am now striving to transfer that credit to the public, and if I can regain for the United States the confidence of individuals so that they will trust their property and exertions in the hands of the government, our independence and our success are certain. But without that confidence, without public credit, we are nothing. So that's, that's the, the task that Morris took on, that he, he, he accepted for himself when he set out as superintendent of finance. But he knew that he couldn't just go to people and say, there's this thing called public credit and it's really great and you've got to back me up on this. So he laid it out, he broke it down, he did the math, and actually, you know, we've grown up with public credit sort of in the air, it's kind of an assumption. Uh, I think it's worthwhile to go through this very simple exercise that Morris went through, and that was, okay, let's say we are a government, take any government, and we owe $100. Now, we have three choices with, to figure out how to pay that debt. Never mind how the debt came about. We have this debt. Uh, we can pay it all right now, $100. Go out, raise the taxes, but if that tax burden is too heavy, well, what are your options? You can say, we're not going to pay it. Well, then you're, then you're in default. You will never have access to those funds again. Nobody will loan to you. They, they won't, that lender won't lend to you again. Neither will anybody else who knows that you've then defaulted. But there's a third option. Borrow the money. And what it boils down to, say you borrowed at 6%. Here's, the, here's what you're confronted with. You need to raise $100 today, or you can raise $6 today. Well, the choice is easy. And he used this example like in, in several instances to different audiences, which would you rather pay, $100 right now or $6? I mean, to him, it was, it was automatic. And it has been pretty much ever since. The logic doesn't change. Uh, when you are confronted, for whatever reason, with a certain amount of obligation, you can either pay it all right now, or you can pay it on time. And you have this, you have, it's a certain, it's, it's leverage that's even stronger than in the founding of a bank. If you found a bank, uh, you take in $100 in deposits, you can make a thousand, if your reserve limit is 10%, you can make $1,000 in loan. And all of a sudden, you're leveraging, you're extending your, the power of yourself and your community to do things. In the case of the government, you're talking about, you know, if you're paying $6 on 100, it's a leverage of 94%. I mean, you're, you are able to really make things happen. It's the way that government can project and, and, and uh, accomplish goals you know, on a much larger scale. Uh, and, and it comes about, you know, it, it, it came about, it first took place, in exigencies, in, in unavoidable situations like wars, particularly wars. And that's where public finance was developed. Morris seized upon it as the solution to the situation that they were facing. 
And he made, he, he, he made this very sort of appealing uh, proposition. You don't have to pay $100, you can pay six. But it was sort of a bait and switch. He was talking to people about how they can, he can take care of their tax burden for them. But he said, there's a, once again, he, he would come in with a condition. He was a great bargainer. He loved making bargains. And so he, this was a bargain he was making. He came in and he said, but there's one condition. You have to pay your taxes. You have to, you have to convince your lenders that they are going to get their money back. And you have to do it by establishing sound, safe, uh, efficient systems of taxation. Well, you know, and here, here's the rub. This is the, this is the conflict. Uh, and, and this was not a popular position in the government at the time. Uh, again, this was a revolution that was being fought in the, in the name of no taxes. Uh, and and the, the leadership of the American Revolution was divided from the very beginning on ideological disputes and, and, and questions and was divided deeply at the time, always very closely, always very contentious, very familiar to today. It's almost to the degree that you start to think maybe it's intrinsic to what uh, this, the nature of the democracy that we've started here. Uh, but this was, the this was the question at the time. The Congress divided pretty evenly on it, and I'll characterize the factions a little bit. Um, one faction is probably best described as the Tea Party of the time. The Tea Party of today really does have antecedents. They are correct in that, in, in, in the American Revolution. Anti-tax, anti-central government, uh, state sovereignty, maximum individual liberty. That was their agenda. That was their agenda then, arrayed against them. And these, these, these factions were not real concrete. People didn't, you know, there weren't parties. They didn't, parties didn't have names. These names have been applied to them years after. This other faction they were opposed against has come to be called the Nationalists. The Nationalists saw the uh, American Revolution uh, in its progress, uh, felt that this, this idea of state sovereignty and, 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 and a, uh, a, uh, a debating society at the center instead of a powerful central government was not going to work. Uh, you couldn't fight a war that way. They had seen all the inefficiencies, all the difficulties that resulted from the lack of coordination, um, and uh, uh, they, uh, they, this was this was the source of this was this was the source of the division at the time between states' rights interests and nationalists, or. Um, as uh, Alexander Hamilton was at the time early in the, he was he was in his first term in the Congress, 1781. He had just left the uh, the uh, government. I, I'm sorry, he had just left Washington's staff in the field and joined the Continental Congress. And he was writing to Washington in early 1783 to describe the dynamic of what's going on there. Just so you know, I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, he wrote to Washington as follows, there are two classes of men, sir, in Congress of very different views, one attached to state, the other to continental politics, the big picture, the nationalists, continental. Uh, the continentalists, the last, have been strenuous advocates for funding public debt upon solid securities. The former, the state's advocates, have given every opposition in their power. Uh, this all came to a head. Um, uh, Morris uh, uh, 
led the, he, was, he, he has been described as the presiding genius of the nationalist faction. He drove for uh, full authority, uh, full uh, taxing authority for the federal government. He was almost successful. Under the Articles of Confederation, the early document uniting the government, um, uniting the states, it was, it was specified that the federal government cannot raise, raise taxes. It was also specified that any amendment to the Articles had to be passed unanimously by the states. Morris went to every state, or emissaries to every state, and got all, all of them to sign on, except for one, the smallest, Rhode Island, known uh, ever after as first in war and last in peace. They were the first ones to renounce allegiance to the crown and the last to sign on under the Constitution of the United States. They spent the longest time of any state in, in, of the 13 colonies as a sovereign state, and they liked it that way. They were, uh, they were rabid anti-tax uh, pirates, basically, in, uh, under, the British, under the British rules of trade. And come the revolution, they did not want to pay taxes uh, to the federal government. Um, their refusal came in September of 1782. Uh, an unanimous vote of the state legislature, hell no, we won't pay. And that was the end of the nationalist funding program. The other thing that ended the road for the nationalists was uh, Yorktown which uh, came as a surprise. Uh, it, was, it was a trap that was sort of sprung by the French with Washington and cahoots, and they, they uh, descended down to Yorktown very rapidly and very suddenly uh, caught Cornwallis out, uh, captured his army, and basically ended the, the likelihood that, military, that, that Britain would prevail in arms. It didn't end the war. It didn't mean the army could get out of the field but it ended the threat that we were going to lose that war because the British would just overrun the Americans. What that meant is this impetus to fund the national government, to keep the army in the field. All the, all the reasons for the nationalist program that they were pushing sort of evaporated. You had a period of... Uh, of uh, the momentum swung back to the states' rights faction. The power went back to the states. The power went out of the Congress. The Congress was barely meeting at that time, and they would issue warnings and people would not listen. Uh, this came to be known as the critical period in American history, the period between Yorktown and the writing of the Constitution. Uh, it was a period of economic recession, of political division, and uh, 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 it got to the point with Shays' Rebellion uh, Shays' Rebellion, where the, author the authorities in Massachusetts were basically trying to answer Morris's question by saying, we'll get the hundred bucks now. And they went out to the farmers and they squeezed them as hard as they could, and the farmers said, we don't have any, of the we can't pay these taxes, and they rose up in revolt. Shays' Rebellion was the catalyst. Uh, people looked at each other and said, this revolution that we fought was really great, but this thing is not working. Something has to change. What changed was, what happened was, the Constitutional Convention of 1787. Uh, uh, Morris and his allies, the Nationalist faction, uh, gathering in Philadelphia, Morris's hometown. Morris as the head of the Pennsylvania delegation, basically the host of the, of the convention. Morris who introduces uh, Washington, the icon of the revolution, to the chair. Uh, and Morris who Actually, uh, at the end of the day, every day of that uh, Constitutional Convention, through those four months of, of the summer of 1787, would walk home with Washington, 
the two of them to uh, Morris's house where Washington stayed as his guest. Uh, there you had the two of them, the two principal figures of the Nationalist Coalition. Uh, Washington, the general, the commander-in-chief, and Morris, the chief civil executive, uh, agreeing that here's what we need to do. And what did they accomplish there uh, at Pen at, in, in Philadelphia? Uh, well, for Morris, for the purposes of Morris and Washington, they accomplished it all when they got there. The, that being uh, the agreement that there would be a central government, that it would be a powerful central government, that it would have the authority to tax, it would, be super, it would reign sovereign over the individual states on all questions of dispute between the states, but primarily that it would have the, the, the power to tax and in order to raise the money to pay those debts back to France, back to Holland. First, the, the denouement of the Constitutional Convention is they do have this power to tax. Uh, they, they, get the, they, they form the new government in 1790 in New York. Uh, Hamilton is the Secretary of Treasury. He follows Morris's lead with the funding program. They fund the debts of the Confederation. Sure enough, the economy comes roaring back. All those debts are brought back into, back into uh, a, a live capital. It, it, Morris talked about uh, the debt being a species of property, and it is. It, it, it becomes pools of capital that capitalists can then uh, turn to to, to uh, finance their projects. And uh, it worked wonderfully. The American economy took off, uh, and by 1794, uh, U.S. government debt was the highest rate of debt in Europe. It uh, commanded the 10% the, uh, premium on the European capital markets. It was a great success. What does that tell us about today? Well, uh, I can't say that uh, it tells us uh, anything in particular. There's so much that has changed. The volume of debt, the volume of, of commerce, um, uh, the, the nature of the state. It's now the welfare state, and it's not just here. It's in all the major places in the, uh, on the planet. Uh, and, and we have a new, uh, the, the dollar is in a new position than it was at the time. It is now the central medium of exchange for the entire uh, global economy. So that uh, we have a lot to answer for if we start screwing around with the dollar. Um, but there are some fundamentals that haven't changed at all. And uh, if, I'm, if they'll give me the last two minutes here, I will give you a couple of uh, quotes that I think uh, are really telling and, and actually will uh, try to give you something of an answer to the question that I begged off of at the beginning. Um, first, let me quote George Soros, the financier and uh, 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 capitalist uh, who, uh, the, uh, the nemesis of the American right wing, but uh, uh, a sagacious guy nevertheless. Uh, writing in the New York uh, Review of Books in October, how much public debt is too much? The question does not have a hard and fast answer. The tolerance for public debt is highly dependent on the, par by the, par on the participants' perceptions and misconceptions. Uh, it is reflexive and therefore indeterminate. I think that's actually a little facile. It's not just their perceptions. They might be perceiving correctly that there's problems with the public debt, but the... Uh, the important variable, uh, Soros says, is the interest rate. The higher the interest rate, the heavier the debt burden. Uh, the interest rate, as he points out, is, is based on perception, perception and, uh, and misconception. It's also uh, based on accurate conception if those debts are not being fully funded. 
But anyway, uh, Soros goes on. Once the risk premium starts rising, the prevailing rate of deficit financing eventually becomes unsustainable. Exactly where the tipping point comes at which government bonds cease to be riskless is difficult to determine because it represents prevailing misconceptions. Well, okay, that's how he puts it. Let's, let's hear from Robert Morris 200 years ago. The more clear, certain, permanent, and increasing the funds are to fund the public debt, the lower will be the interest at which money can be borrowed. Well, okay, it comes down to interest rates. Um, if the funds are very good, money can be borrowed at 4%, perhaps 3%. If they are not good, if, they are not, if there is no confidence in the payment, it will not be procured at less than 6 7 or 8%, or possibly not at all. It will not be forgotten, Morris cautions, that whether the debt be lesser or greater, and whether the interest higher or lower, the people must pay all. In other words, don't be leading people into thinking that they don't have to pay these things. If, uh, unless you're ready to go into default. And what does default mean? Well, today, or uh, default on, on the, the, say the Congress sits there and says, ah, we're not gonna raise the debt ceiling, screw it, we're just gonna, we're gonna see what happens. Well, uh, and in fact, Michael Tomaski uh, in the New York Review of Books in the current issue is writing about this question. He says, uh, he quotes, uh, he quotes uh, Lindsey Graham, the Republican senator saying, to not raise the debt ceiling could be a default of the United States bond and treasury obligations. But I'm gonna vote against raising the debt ceilings if they don't cut the budget to 2008. Oh, great. Uh, Tomaski's reaction was, uh, not failing to raise the debt ceiling could set off anything from global wariness to global meltdown. And I think that's, uh, that's hard to dispute. Um, I'll close with uh, one more quote from Morris. Uh, writing to the governor saying that, uh, once again, explaining the virtues of public, uh, public credit and how uh, you need taxes to support it. He said, we may be happy or miserable as we please, uh, depending on whether we decide we're going to pay these taxes or not. That's, my, uh, that's what I can contribute to the question of public, public, uh, public credit today. Uh, from these sages of 200 years ago. Thanks very much, and any questions? Benjamin Franklin said when the British prohibited uh, the colonies from issuing their own currency, it made the revolution inevitable at that point. Do you agree with that? Because the, the, the economy of the colonies uh, rested on them issuing their own currency. They, they did it through land banks, and uh, they were... Uh, they were sufficient to the agricultural sort of economies of the time. And uh, by barring the states from issuing their own currency, they basically were shutting down the American economy and, and, and forcing the hand of the Americans. We're talking about the, uh, uh, the trust that people had to have in what Robert Morris was selling or uh, were trying to convince people. But what ultimately led those farmers in western Massachusetts and other places to have that trust so that they, uh, so that the government could in fact be successful in raising the funds it needed to do? Well, um, I'm not sure this answers the question, but the, the, what forced, the, what brought the nationalists back to the fore, you know, they, they, had this, they had their moment in the early 1780s uh, of being in control of the government, of saying, let's, let's get with the national program. Uh, 
they were sent out to pasture. And uh, you enter the critical period, you have, it, it was just a very dark time, uh, economically, politically, uh, and sort of uh, all, the, all the excitement of the American Revolution, the success at, in arms, the driving out the British and thinking now it's all ours and then seeing it all kind of starting to fall apart. Uh, that's what convinced Americans that they needed to needed a new uh, strategy, a new approach. That's what brought the nationalists back together in Philadelphia. They wrote the Constitution. The Constitution went out for signature. There was a lot of you know there was a lot of people who were very invested in their uh, fiefdom sort of uh, power structures, like in New York. George Clinton, Governor Clinton, he hated the idea of the Constitution because it, it, he was no longer top dog. Um, same thing in Virginia. There's a lot of resistance, but ultimately in each state in the union, even in Rhode Island, finally the last one to sign on, uh, people saw the wisdom of uh, banding together instead of uh, uh, standing separately. Question is, why have we never heard of Robert Morris? I mean, in, in sort of in the kind of our conception of the revolution, Alexander Hamilton seems to be the one that we connect as the, the first treasury secretary and I don't know if you were suggesting that he was just a kind of a protege of, of Morris's, but Morris seems to be largely forgotten. I don't know if you have comment about why that might be. Well, um, the long answer is the epilogue of this book, which runs about the uh, 10,000 words and tells you uh, the whole story of what uh, happened. To <laughs> but um, the short version is uh, uh, Robert Morris was rich, round, Kind of, kind of a fat cat. That doesn't really comport with what Americans like to think of as their revolutionary heritage. Uh, and it, it, I'd take it a step farther. Americans have a love-hate relationship with capitalism. We are the citadel of global capitalism. We are the most successful capitalist enterprise on the planet. We are the envy of most other countries on the globe for our material success but we don't feel real good about that. <laughs> we feel like capitalists are, are creepy. And uh, it, it's, it's sort of sorted to be motivated by money. So Morris, uh, people, you know, to, it, he doesn't, it's, it's not what people like to think of when they think of their heritage. I think that's part of it. I think part of it is that Hamilton had a widow who devoted uh, a lot of her life to preserving his memory. Uh, Morris, I'll tell you, uh, part of the remarkable arc of his story is the crash at the end. After he left the government, I feel, uh, my sense is that he felt in a big hurry to recover the fortune that he felt he had set aside and not quite gotten a hold of because of his government service. So he plunged deeply into uh, the land market. Uh, which turned out to be America's first land bubble. Uh, it burst. Uh, Morris was left holding six million acres of backcountry lands from uh, western New York State all the way down to Georgia. Uh, he couldn't pay for it. Uh, his debtors came to him, uh, and he couldn't answer them, and went, was consigned to debtor's prison. Spent three years in debtor's prison toward the end of his life. So uh, as much as we don't like capitalists, we also, when, when, if there is a capitalist who 
we want to subscribe to, we like to think that he knows what he's doing. Or more than that, that he has sort of the Midas touch. And uh, that was not the case with Morris. Uh, he, he, was, he, was, uh, it, he lost his luster right from the outset. Um, there was a period when he was uh, highly regarded. In fact, he's on the rotunda of the national, nation's capital. They have this thing this uh, fresco called the Apotheosis of Washington, and there you find Robert Morris accepting a bag of gold from Hermes, the god of commerce, <laughs> who's handing it to him, at telling him, you know what to do with this. But uh, people don't think of him that way anymore. Question is, we, we know that George Soros made, has made his fortune as a, a speculator on a massive scale, on a global scale. Um, does the whole taxation picture become different in the kind of globalized economy that we have. In other words, it's forget about the, the tax code. We, we have like credit is something that circulates globally. Is this something that Robert Morris anticipated? Um, and uh, to what extent do you reconcile that with um, uh, uh, an electorate that seems as uh, uh, tax uh, revolt, in the mood to revolt against taxes as they ever have been. Morris anticipated anything that anything global uh, before anybody in his, of his time. He was practicing global capitalism uh, at the very onset of global capitalism. Uh, I think he he understood capital markets. He had a very modern sort of uh, approach to things. Maybe it feels a little hackneyed now, but he was in, in uh, 17. 80 walking around saying commerce should be as free as the air. Um, he, uh, what he would make of, uh, I think he and Soros would agree on a lot of their, their sense of, of the question of public debt. It's not a question of quantity, it's a question of whether it's well-founded. And uh, if the funds are there and the interest rates stay low, it's always a good deal. If the funds start to get shaky, and people start to wonder if they're going to get paid and the interest rate starts driving up, uh, it's going to get very expensive. And uh, we have, I, when I thought I had a little more time for the lecture, I brought some of the headlines that have been coming out today or in the past couple of weeks. Uh, uh, a new hit to strapped states, the market for municipal bonds tumbling, cities, hospitals, schools, and other public borrowers are scrambling to refinance tens of billion dollars of debt this year, another sign that the once safe municipal market is under duress. Uh, part of the reason it's under the duress is we have announced that we're not going to pay taxes and we're not going to pay we're not going to pay for these improvements and these things. It it really started in California with Prop 13. And it's like, okay, we're not going to pay taxes anymore. I was going to ask you about that. Well, it's like great. But who's going to pay these debts? And if you if you're not paying taxes, they're just going to get more expensive. You can't you got to pay for this stuff. Anyway, okay. I mean, you know, <laughs> And if you, if you don't pay for your schools, then you issue school bonds. And the bond market starts to get crowded. I mean, you have to pay. You can't just say, we're not going to pay anymore. Because this is kind of where it goes. Uh, my name is Todd Kerner. Uh, following up a bit on that last answer, do you think Robert Morris ever could have foreseen the sorry state of uh, state budgets right now? And if he could have, or if he were here now, what do you think his solution might be for that? Um, well, first, let me also thank you all for coming out. Uh, it's gratifying to have uh, an audience talking about uh, something as 
esoteric as taxes, but uh, that's what I've been looking at for some time, and uh, I, uh, I'm glad that other people are interested in it too. Uh, I don't know. I've I've wondered, you know, uh, if Morris, uh, what he would make of of the current day. I mean, the the scene of government and sort of the 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 scale and the scope of government activity is something that we've never seen before. It's it's new under the sun, basically since World War II, and it's not just here. It's in Europe and uh, a, a number of other uh, the advanced societies around the globe, and government plays a huge part in that. Now, uh, it's hard to say what Morris would have done, but Morris did say some interesting things about taxes. Um, uh, he said that uh, he said that uh, taxes um, were a, a positive in society. Uh, that they sort of spur people toward industry, and uh, it's, it's generally a, a good thing. And uh, if the primary obligations of the government, the, the mounting of an army and a navy and the, the, the institution of the government itself were not using up enough money, then uh, you might consider spending that money on roads or navigations. And this is at a time when America was, you know, mostly a wilderness and, and there was, but he was, he was talking about the next stage of government activity beyond the basic defense of the state and, and defense of, of, of the borders. And, and so uh, uh, I could see Morris seeing the, the innovations of, of the teens and the 20s and then into the 40s and the 50s and, and not, not, not necessarily being one of those people who says, this isn't the purview of government. He, he, he was a civic improver and he might have signed off on some of that stuff. Now, what he would say about the state of, you know, and, and I'm sure he would, you know, I can't speak for Robert Morris, but uh, I can't see him being uh, a dead set against public education and some of those kinds of things. It sounds like a good idea. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty sure he would say, well, you have to pay for it. Um, I'll read you one quote because uh, now I, I'm officially over, so you guys are on your own time now. <laughs> Uh, I'll read you a couple of quotes on taxes that I found very, very uh, uh, compelling. Here's Morris on taxes. Uh, it, the, this was an answer to a letter from the governor of Connecticut who wrote to him and said, we really support everything you're doing and you're just, it's great to see you in the office there, but we can't send you any money because we don't have any. And he wrote back, as to the complaint made by the people for a want of money to pay their taxes, it is nothing new to me nor indeed to anybody. The complaint, I believe, is quite as old as taxation and will last as long. Uh, uh, that times are hard, that money is scarce, that taxes are heavy and the like are constant themes of declamation in all countries and will be so. But the very generality of the complaint shows it to be ill-founded. The fact is that men will always find a use for all the money they can get a hold of and more. <laughs> A tax gatherer is therefore will always be unwelcome, an unwelcome guest because his demand must necessarily interfere with some pleasurable or profitable pursuit. Hundreds who cannot find the money to pay taxes expend much more in the gratification of vanity, luxury, drunkenness, and debauchery <laughs> than is necessary to establish the freedom of their country. 
Here's the guy. Uh, so, but this book isn't all about taxes. Robert Morris is a very entertaining guy. He, he, one of his credos was to mix business with pleasure at every opportunity. Another was to mix personal profit with public service. Uh, he's quite a character, and uh, I invite you to spend as much time with him as you can possibly spare. Thanks a lot for coming out again.